You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. My name is Rachel, and I have the privilege of leading a community group with my husband, Matt. And today's scripture passage is from Matthew 5, 1 through 12 in the NIV. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Our men's retreat just concluded this morning. A bunch of men were up in the mountains, and it was amazing. Some of our staff just got back last night. So thank you for uh, praying for them and that time. It was amazing. Uh, Today, we begin a series through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we're asking, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? What will happen if we truly follow him? How will I be encouraged? How will I be challenged? And how will I be changed if I recognize him as the son of God, trust in him, and follow him? Whether you're new and you're exploring Christian faith or you've been a Christian for many years, let's pray right now that the spirit of God would speak to us all and that we would be led to Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask this morning that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts to receive, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, and most of all, that we would be transformed as we are led to your son, Jesus, that we truly might trust him, follow him, and continue to follow him. God, I pray that we would not ignore or resist your word, but receive with an open heart. May your spirit be our teacher. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, it was the great American writer, Kurt Vonnegut, who said, if it weren't for the message of mercy and pity, In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. Now, the writer, like so many throughout the last 2,000 years, is drawn to the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because the Sermon on the Mount addresses the deepest questions about humanity. How should I live? What should I live for? What is wrong with the world? 
what must be done to make it right. One commentator calls the Sermon on the Mount Christ's magnum opus or his state of the universe address. And that is why it's been called the most famous sermon ever preached. Literally, billions of people have heard this sermon. But how do we understand it? Some recognize the Sermon on the Mount and talk about it as a perfect standard of ethical behavior. The U.S. General Omar Bradley once said, we've grasped the mystery of the Adam and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. We've learned how to destroy, but not to create, how to waste, but not to build, how to kill men, but not how to save them, how to die, but seldom how to live. Is that how we are to understand the Sermon on the Mount, just as a list of ethical behavior? Well, one professor of ethics called the Sermon on the Mount an enigma to the modern conscience and concluded that the Sermon on the Mount is the most important and most controversial text of all time. Why? Well, imagine for a moment if we were to take verses from the Sermon on the Mount place them on billboards throughout Ventura County, how would people respond? I think the people driving on the 101 northbound seeing a sign that says, love your enemies, would be like, mm, so good. But then on their southbound journey, what if they saw even to lust after another woman in your heart is to commit adultery? I don't know how I feel about that one being on a billboard. See, though the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps one of the most most well-known sermons in history, I think it can be argued that it is often the least understood and the least practiced. Our goal in these next few months from now until the beginning of December is not only to understand what Jesus is teaching, but to understand who Jesus is and not who we make him out to be. Because we live in a culture that most people would say that they like Jesus. But I often ask, which Jesus are you talking about? Because many people have a pick and mix view of Jesus. They highlight the parts about Jesus that they've heard of, that they like, and they ignore the parts that they don't like. Ross Dothit, who wrote a great book called Bad Religion, also great band name for those of you who were around in the 90s. He says this, as a result, the Jesus of the New Testament, whose paradoxical mix of qualities and commandments presents a challenge to every ideology and faction, has been replaced in the hearts and minds of many with a more congenial figure, a choose-your-own-Jesus who better fits their own preconceptions about what a Savior should And shouldn't be. But the Sermon on the Mount will not let us pick and mix. For the Sermon on the Mount, like all the Gospels and the teachings of Scripture, present us with Jesus as he truly is. He arrived on the scene claiming to be the Son of God. 
and that God's redeeming rule as king has arrived in himself. And he describes what life is like in his kingdom. That is why the crowds and the observers and the disciples were amazed at what Jesus taught. For it says at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Why is the Sermon on the Mount so powerful? Why is it so challenging? Why is it an enigma to many people? And what are we even supposed to do with it? How are we to understand it? Well, as we embark on this three-month journey, I want us to begin by taking three truths to heart and answering those questions. For it is these three truths, not just in isolation, but in combination together that transforms us into kingdom people if we receive them with an open heart. And the first is this. The way of Jesus is beautiful. The way of Jesus is beautiful. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot help but to see how remarkable it is. Why? Well, first, notice the context. Jesus, in giving this sermon, he does not withdraw from the crowds, but rather he draws the crowds to himself. And when he does, it is with authority. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Here is the son of God looking out at needy humanity and he does not withdraw from them. Rather, he goes to them and draws them to himself. And the significance of the description is more than just a random geographical location. When Jesus goes on the mountain in that part of Israel to teach, it is an echo of what every Hebrew child would have known from the earliest years. The last time an authoritative teacher came, it was Moses and revealed and gave to them the law that God had entrusted to him on the mountainside. And so the commentators believe that Jesus, in choosing this location on the mountainside, is setting himself up as the true and better Moses, the authoritative interpreter of the law of God. Though originally given through Moses, Jesus says is actually fulfilled in him. Fulfilled in him. He even gives himself a climactic description as the final judge. So why did the crowds marvel? Why, was, why are the words and way of Jesus so, so beautiful and unlike anything else? Well, first, because they reveal a God that comes to us, not a picture of humanity trying to make their way to God. Second reason the way of Jesus is beautiful, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, is because all are invited Everyone is invited. Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine, whoever, anyone and everyone, 
His instruction is for all, not just for some particular group of people, showing us that God's kingdom community is made up of men and women regardless of status, regardless of ethnicity or rank or class or background or achievement. All are invited into God's kingdom by grace which practically should actually shape our expectations of what we experience when we come into a church environment like this. Kind of like a family, right? You didn't choose your siblings, even though some of you secretly wish that maybe you could. (laughs) You're like, does this one come with a receipt? Because I want to return it, right? You don't choose your family when you're a sibling. Like it, it just happens. You're born into that family and that's your family, which is a good reminder for those of you who are somewhat new to church, maybe you're a little jaded on church and you're like, I don't like these people. I thought this was a family. To which I respond, did you have a family? Because my brother and I like beat each other up like every single day. Like that, that's family. I'm not endorsing that behavior. <laughs> Just saying it's messy. Because if the Christian life begins by faith, meaning that we're not accepted into God's kingdom on the basis of our performance and that we're all sinners, it's gonna be a little messy. All are invited. This truth is further articulated elsewhere by Jesus in the gospels and all over the New Testament. Paul the apostle says in his letter to the Galatian church in chapter three, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. The way of Jesus is beautiful. It's God coming to us, drawing us to himself. Everyone is invited. Which has some very practical implications. As we go through our time in the Sermon on the Mount, it is worth pointing out that if you choose to follow Jesus, you can't put his words into practice in isolation. The New Testament knows nothing about a Christian living out their whole life in solitude. You can't love your enemy if you're never around humans. So don't say, you know what, I found this like random place past Ojai, I built a shack and I've got my Bible and I'm never gonna see anyone again. I'm just gonna do the Sermon on the Mount. We're like, no, you're not. (laughs) No, you're not. You and that random eagle up there, you're not gonna live this Sermon on the Mount. You can't do any of this stuff. It's meant to be practiced in community. Community is not an optional extra in the Christian life. All of these things must be practiced Together, it's why we make such a big deal about community life in our church because community is a part of the gospel. You are saved from sin into God's new community. And the Sermon on the Mount is a description of that kingdom community. So the way of Jesus is beautiful. God comes to us and invites us all. But it is also beautiful because of the practices that he teaches. They're so compelling. People can't ignore them. And they're so practical and helpful in a world where everything is so broken. Now, some of us take this for granted. If you're born and raised in a nation that's been largely shaped, whether people realize it or not, by Judeo-Christian values. But when you speak to people who are raised in a part of the world where it's not, and perhaps there's more of an honor-shame culture, 
you'll find the words and teachings of Jesus absolutely transformative and very practical. For people who are raised in a culture of vengeance, Jesus says, love your enemies. Think about the magnificence of some of the practices that Jesus teaches. Forgiveness, generosity, compassion, faithfulness, truthfulness, justice, honesty, service. If you think that those are good things, you got those ultimately from the Bible. There's an amazing author. His name is Vishal Mengalwadi. He's, um, he's an Indian writer And he wrote a book called The Book That Changed Your World. And he writes saying, hey, I grew up in India, but then when I became a Christian and came and studied in the West, I realized that so many people in the West take for granted that even what they casually assume about compassion and justice and even human rights comes from the Bible. And so the title is The Book That Shaped Your World. Even people who would not want to consider themselves as anyone wanting to go to church or wanting to follow Jesus cannot deny the beauty of what he teaches. And so here we find in the passage we just had read of what a Christ follower is to look like, which we're going to begin to unpack next week when we go through the Beatitudes. But have you ever thought of the practices that Jesus is teaching here as a part of your deliverance from destructive patterns? For example, the command to rest keeps you from the pattern of overworking. The command towards generosity kills off patterns of greed. The command to deal radically with lust keeps you faithful, either in singleness or in marriage. The command and practice to forgive keeps you from unrighteous vengeance. And so I do, friends, hope that we see throughout our time studying together how wonderful and how practical the teachings of Jesus are in training us how to respond in life's toughest temptations. The way of Jesus is beautiful. It's God coming to us. Everyone is invited. It's insanely practical, but the ultimate reason that the way of Jesus is beautiful is because it's not only for our good, it's for the glory of God. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Now, some people stop there. They say, I'm into the teachings of Jesus because it gets me like a good reputation. I get a pat on the back. I get the attention if I'm like, oh, you're such a good person. You're so forgiving. You're so just. And you're like, stop. Don't. Don't stop. But it doesn't end there. It's let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Why? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All of these are, these attributes reflect the very attributes of God. And though we attempt to practice them woefully and adequately at times, they are echoes of who God is. God is a God of forgiveness. God is the ultimate God of justice. God is the God of truth. God is the God of grace. We get to reflect him and show him off to a lost and dying world as we seek to put his words into practice by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
as we implement his teachings, it becomes one of the best ways to commend the kingdom of God to others. Because truth not only needs to be explained, it also needs to be exemplified. So as a church, as we follow the way of Jesus, we offer an alternative that is truly beautiful. But there's another truth. The way of Jesus is beautiful. And that's why so many people have been compelled by it. But this is also something you need to take to heart as you ignore the kids like skating in the other room. Like, they're not dying, they're having fun. And I know the two sound similar. <laughs> the second truth is this, the way of Jesus is radical. The way of Jesus is radical. Why does the Sermon on the Mount present an enigma to so many people? Because on the one hand, there are certain truths that are so immediately appealing. But at the same time, there are teachings that are incredibly challenging. So in what ways can we expect this radical challenge? Let me give you three areas of challenge that we're going to experience as we study this together. First, Jesus challenges our cultural assumptions. Just like Jesus in his teaching challenged many of the cultural assumptions in the culture on that day, so too, because the truth is true forever, will challenge many of our cultural assumptions today. There's a phrase you will find repeated often in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus is going to repeat that phrase several times. Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And you can imagine some people like, hear, hear. <laughs> but I tell you, he's challenging. But I tell you, love your enemies. What? And pray for those who persecute you. What was Jesus doing? He was challenging a cultural assumption. Jesus has and will challenge many of our personal and cultural assumptions head on. Now, specifically, he's speaking to those in a Jewish context, but also, as we'll see, he also references the broader pagan context. And this is important because we have a lot of beliefs that we just assume are true and right because they're so familiar. And they're often captured in little slogans that nobody even questions. But are they actually true? Are they actually good? Would Jesus embrace them or would he challenge them? Let me give you a few examples. You do you. People are like, oh, so good. I'm so glad I came to church today. That's what I needed to hear. That's in the Sermon on the Mount, right? <laughs> or what about love is love? Well, I guess regarding sexual ethic, 
is that the truth that I should follow? Or what about follow your heart? These are slogans that are so familiar that people don't even question them. Like, what does that even mean? Where does that come from? And what if it was horribly wrong? Jesus challenges cultural assumptions. Be prepared to have some of your own challenged. But he also challenges religiosity. So one of the challenges we can come to expect is our cultural assumptions. He'll challenge them. But he also challenges religiosity. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will challenge not only the pagans, but also the religious leaders in Israel in his day. You could almost say people on the left and people on the right are both going to get challenged. You can imagine as Jesus was critiquing pagan culture, that some of the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were nodding their heads in approval. And then Jesus calls them out. If you're anything like me, I often, when I'm reading a text like this, I try to imagine, like, what would it have been like to be just an average Israelite going, you heard about Jesus, and you, like, show up, and you look over, and you're like, oh, there's some of the, the Pharisees there. Those are the religious leaders. They were considered, by the way, the guardians of culture. They were very careful that they didn't defile themselves by associating with the pagans. And then maybe on the fringe of the crowd, as Jesus is on the mountaintop, you're like, ooh, there's some Romans here. There's some Greeks. Is Jesus going to affirm them both? Like, what's Jesus going to do? Let me give you an example on prayer in Matthew chapter 5. Because Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And you'd be standing there like, oh, my goodness. And maybe some of the Greeks are like, yeah, hypocrites. And then Jesus says, and when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. And like, oh, he got them too. <laughs> See, the pagan community thinks, that, oh, it's the religious people. that it's their, They're the ones that are wrong. And the religious people are like, it's the pagans that are the problem. To which Jesus says, Yes. Because underneath all of this, Jesus challenges idolatry. Jesus challenges idolatry. Every individual and every community has built an identity on something other than God. That's what an idol is. And the Bible calls this this condition, sin. We're all terminal apart from grace. We have a condition called sin, a rebellion, turning away from God and placing other things in his rightful place, worshiping creation rather than creator. And as a result, all the, the wrong things that we do are called sins. Those are the symptoms and Jesus addresses many symptoms or sins in the Sermon on the Mount. Worry, unfaithfulness, 
immorality, impurity, greed, injustice, dishonesty, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, cowardice, lust, unrighteous anger, arrogance, and pride. He addresses sins, the symptom. But underneath all of those symptoms is the condition of sin. Our idolatry. For example, we've all lied in this room, right? If you say no, you're a liar. <laughs> we've all lied. But why did you lie? So lying is the symptom, one of our sins. But why did we lie? Many people lie because you want to save face. You want to control how other people see you. And so you're building your life on your own reputation above the actual truth. And so you lied. So the symptom, the sins that we have, that in that case, lying. But what was underneath that symptom? Idolatry. The Bible's very clear. None of us are naturally free. We're all in captivity to sin apart from God's grace. And so no matter what, we're all going to be challenged by the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you will hear certain teachings and you'll, you'll cheer. And yet you'll be humbled and challenged when you hear others. He challenges them all. And the stakes could not be higher. Because here's what Jesus says at the end. Everyone who hears these words of mine, Matthew 7, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The stakes could not be higher. If our sin is not dealt with, if we continue to build our lives on something other than Christ, no matter how well the structure looks, no matter the materials with which it is made, no matter how well it is engineered, it will fall. And the devastation will be eternal. There are many who are building, busy at building their lives, a little success here, some money, some reputation, some achievement, some good works. My house looks good. And it may appear to be so for some time. Like the builder who had some great beachfront property but only came to find that when the storm came, it would not last. Jesus says, great was its fall. For in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is dealing with humanity's most fundamental need. So what are we to do with a sermon that is both Beautiful on the one hand, we cannot deny its power. But it is also radical. And it challenges 
every single one of us, if we are honest. What do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? There's actually quite a debate amongst many Christians on this. On the one hand, should we just seek to just do it? And it's as simple as that. Just, hey, all you need to figure it out is just just do it. Just do the Sermon on the Mount. That's it. You don't need to know anything else. Just do it. Other Christians, some commentators say no. The Sermon on the Mount is so radical. Jesus didn't give us the sermon to practice it, some commentators say. He gave us the sermon so that we'd be so convicted that we could never do it. So that we would come to God for grace. So which is it? Well, John Stott, one of my favorite commentators, as many of you know, summarizes it wonderfully. He says, the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, nor totally unattainable by man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. But to put them within everybody's reach is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth, which is the indispensable condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. This debate actually leads us to the very heart of the gospel. Because listen, friends, unlike any other speech in history, Unlike any other leader in history, we cannot separate the power of the teaching from the power of the teacher himself because Christ alone transforms us from the inside out and gives us a kingdom heart. The way of Jesus is beautiful, radical, and lastly, by faith in him, it is possible. By faith in Christ alone, it is possible. This vision is not based on human effort, but on God's deliverance. That's why Jesus, when he began his public ministry before the Sermon on the Mount, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's all based on the work of God coming into your life, which keeps us from two errors. One is trying to do what Jesus said in our own strength and trying to make ourselves into good people. Or the other error is to ignore it altogether. Both responses will end in tragedy. But the gospel is the solution. The behavior described here is only possible for someone who's undergone a radical change. It is impossible to live the Sermon on the Mount un aided by God. But Jesus changes us from the inside out. He lived it perfectly. He died on a cross 2,000 years ago in our place to pay the penalty for our failure to do so. And it doesn't end there. He rose again. The tomb is empty. He sent the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling us with resurrection power to live as kingdom people. God breaks in. He redeems 
us from our sinful rebellion. He heals our brokenness. He removes our shame and he causes us to come alive and he turns you into the type of person that does the things listed in the sermon. And when you fall and you fail and you will, you can be forgiven again and again because Christ paid it all. That is good news. And it is the good news that empowers us. See, here's why I want to be so clear about that. Religion says, a religious attitude says, if I do these things, then I'll become the type of person that Jesus will accept. If you're here this morning, I just spoke to a person who was brand new to church earlier after first service, and I was like shaking his hand, and he's like, oh, I really liked it. Like, I want to be a better person. I grabbed his hand. I was like, you need to trust in Christ. Like, don't misunderstand the message. You should not leave here today saying to your spouse, I'm going to crush it this week. I'm going to be better. I mean, your wife or your husband's going to roll their eyes anyway, but like be that as it may. That's not the point. Religion says, I've got this, God. If I need any help, I'll give you a shout. And irreligion, secular society says, I don't need it anyway. We're all going to be free. But the gospel of grace says Jesus comes and he changes you at your core. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new heart and a clean start. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are then able to live the way that God intended, a way that reflects him. And this changes everything. It even changes how you address different important topics in your life. It changes the questions you're asking about making decisions. So instead of saying, for example, how much money do I need to give exactly in order to be a good Christian? That's the wrong question. But when grace has changed your heart, you say, because Christ has saved me and given everything to me at infinite cost to himself, how can I reflect him in my generosity? That's the right question. Or think of sexual ethics. The question is not, how far can I go with this man or woman who's not my spouse and still be a Christian? How many times have I heard that question? But that's not the right question. The question is, since God has purchased my life, and made me his own, and I'm meant to reflect him in this world, how can I show dignity in the way that I use my body and the way that I treat other men and women that will reflect the holiness and goodness of God? Changes everything. This is not a manual for the spiritual elite, but a description of a life lived in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher in his book on the Sermon on the Mount once said that the sermon itself is but a grand elaboration on the command to love. To love as God defines it, even at great cost to yourself. But how can we show that love to others? It's only when we've seen how God has first shown it to us. 
And that's what he did in the gospel. For we read these words in the broader context of everything that Christ has already done. That he lived for us. That he died for us. Even while we were sinners. And he rose again to give us new life. And so this sermon will lead us, as it is even now, again and again to the gospel of grace. That by the power of the Spirit, we seek to obey Christ. Yes, this is a call to obedience, but it is the obedience of faith. And when we fail, and we will, we confess, we repent, and we rely once again on his mercy and grace that he secured for us through the cross of Christ. And as we do, friends, over and over again, we will become what Jesus said, like a city set on a hill, shining a light that does not draw attention to ourselves, but to Christ, our Savior. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, I invite you to do so today. That's not the same as going to church. That's not the same as doing good things, showing good behavior, or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It is making that decision to say, Jesus, you are the only Savior who can save me from sin and eternal death, and I choose to trust in what you have done for me on my behalf 2,000 years ago. If you have not yet done so, do so today, and you can begin on this day to build your life on the rock. And if you are a follower of Jesus, and for us as a church, this is a call for us to go deeper into Christ to continue to build on his solid foundation, to perhaps turn away from areas where he has not been our focus, where he's not been the one leading us and guiding us in our decisions. So that whatever conviction you experience or challenge that you've been met with even today is an invitation to trust in Christ. And here is the assurance if we do. Everyone, Jesus says, who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Friends, if you are building your life on Jesus through faith, who he is, what he's done, that can stand up to anything because Jesus paid it all. Will we put him at the center? Will we build on him as our foundation? Will we worship him as savior? I pray that we would. Let's pray together and let's respond to him now. Father, I pray that none of us this morning would respond with a religious attitude, thinking that we can 
better ourselves in our own strength. Or that we need to go away and sort it out first before we come to you. Because we never could. I pray, God, that your spirit would both reveal our sin, our inadequacy, our inability not to condemn us, but to heal us as you draw us to yourself. And whether it is for the first time or once again, we trust in the finished work of Christ. I pray, God, that we would not resist what your Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. I pray that we would respond and that we would say, Jesus, you are king. You are my king. I trust in you. By your grace, I wanna follow you in my marriage, in my singleness, in my work, in my thought life, with my body, with my money. God, may this moment be a time where we say, Jesus, you are king, and we come to you for grace and mercy in our time of need because you will always give it because of Christ. So Spirit of God, would you do that? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.